Hey, chubby chasers, this is Jamie Campbell. You're listening to Improv Nerd. Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy. Hey, everybody, this is Jimmy Crane, and this is another episode of Improv Nerd sponsored by the good people at Hotel Lincoln. The next time you find yourself in the city of Chicago and you are looking for a cool boutique hotel that's close to everything, right around the corner from Second City, across the street from the Lincoln Park Zoo, and minutes away from Chicago's Loop, check out the official hotel of Improv Nerd, Hotel Lincoln. And I'd quickly like to plug my award-winning improv classes here in Chicago, The Art of Slow Comedy. Now, before you can be funny, you need to be real. And in this class, you're going to learn how to slow things down at the top of the scene. And you're going to be able to find everything off your partner. Work organically to find, the, to find really the game, the relationship, the environment, the dialogue. It's all in your partner if you're just willing to slow things down. Uh, to, to making scene work is easy as having a conversation. I limit my classes to no more than 12 people so you get the personal attention you deserve in an improv class plus plenty of stage time. The next class is start February 22nd. For more information, please go to jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com for the Art of Slope comedy classes. Let's get on with the show, and our, you're going to love it today, because our guest today is Jamie Campbell. Uh, in 2013, the Chicago Reader, which is like uh, the L.A. Weekly or New York, Time Out New York, gave Jamie Campbell the award of the best stand-up here in Chicago. He also performs regularly with Comedy Sports and the Annoyance Theater, and we talked to Jamie Campbell about so many things. What a childhood he had. What a dark childhood he had. And we talk about that and how he deals with it and how he uses comedy as therapy to get through it. You are not going to believe how dark of a childhood he had. Also about how he uses dark material and how he he crafts it in his stand-up. And also we talk about comedy sports and we talk about the joy uh, of comedy sports and how of of all the places that I've seen that can teach joy in improvisation, nobody does it better than comedy sports. Now, I'd never seen Jamie improvise before. And as you know, I've had judgments about short form and comedy sports, and I'm working through it, and I think I've made great, great progress having people on, talking about it with you guys. And uh, so I felt a little in this improv, Jamie surprised me, because he is a really great improviser. And I felt like I didn't hold up my end, uh, and I, I didn't expect him to be that strong and that good. And so I just, I, I, I don't know if I want to apologize or make an amends that I, I kind of, I, I, I held back a little in this because I was judging at the, at the beginning. So um, I, just, I just want to acknowledge that. You're not going to hear any difference uh, in this episode. It's all going on in my head, but I just thought you should know about it, that you know what? I still judge a lot, and I'm sorry I do, but I do. So here it is. You're going to love this episode. This guy blew me away from the, the interview to the improv. Here it is, the Jamie Campbell episode. Good to be here. It's good. It's good to have you here. Um, all right. Kidnapped by your mom. Oh wow! You're just and getting right I'm into getting it. Right to it. You're not even saying how you're doing, or no, anything. No, no, we gotta get right to it. Holy shit! Yeah. All right. Sure. Can you move over here so I can see the timer? Yeah. Okay. We're right. You know, it's a very. You know, you do a talk show. You sure. Know, it's, it's, yeah, we're on a time schedule. We're on yeah. a time schedule. Let's get right into uh, the moment I was ruined as a human. Right. <laughs> Let's do that. Okay. Uh, Sure. So uh, at the age of 12, I was living with my mom, and she's a single mom at the time. Okay. Living with me and my sister. I've also got three half-brothers that were in various states of living with their father or in between. It's actually me, my sister at the time, and my two half-brothers. One was visiting his father, and then the other two were still living with us, and my mom was going through a custody battle. Mm-hmm. And my stepmother at the time was barren, and in a scene right out of a Lifetime movie, she actually told my mom, I can't have kids. So I'm going to take yours. And she filed for custody. My mom was living on welfare, trying to put herself through community college. 
and uh, my dad's side of the family is doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so there was a custody battle. My mom had dealt with, uh, their marriage was abusive. When, when you say abusive, what, what do you mean? I mean physically abusive. Okay, so you saw your dad, your, your, your dad beat your mom? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he, he got over it, you know. Like, my dad and I are good now. I'm going right. to spend Christmas What do you Christmas mean he got over it? He, uh, in the second marriage, he never hit her once. Okay. Just verbally abused each other. Okay. okay. It's pretty sweet. Um, so in the midst of that, my mom was also in a common-law marriage. Mm -hmm. Basically, a guy had lived with her for three years that uh, sexually assaulted her while she was pregnant with his sons mm -hmm. and was exhibiting from what the people my mom was talking to some sociopathic behaviors. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, maybe he's going to murder me. I don't know, but I'm scared. Mm -hmm. In between that and the custody battle, she'd be damned if she was going to send her kids to the guy that used to abuse her. Mm -hmm. So she packed us up. We uh, were given train tickets by a battered women's shelter. Now, did you know this was going on? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you, you, you knew what was going on? I did. I don't know that I was in the best frame of mind because I was 12. Okay. But... But you knew you were being kidnapped. I did. It seemed like a fun adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the night before, my best friend at the time, I can't find this guy on Facebook or anywhere. I was in sixth grade. It was like the first nine weeks of sixth grade. And my best friend was a kid named Tad Watkins. Mm -hmm. And the night before we were leaving, I knew we were leaving. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't tell it. My mom told me, you can go out trick-or-treating, but you can't tell Tad. Mm -hmm. I dressed up as Ace Fraley. He was Peter Chris from Kiss. Okay. And we went around trick-or-treating in one of the most bittersweet evenings of my life. I'm spending it with my best friend in the world at the time, and I know it's the last time I'm going to see him. He has no idea. And you haven't seen him or talked to him since? I did talk. They let me uh, call him on the payphone at the, the battered women's shelter that we stayed at for a week mm -hmm. while we were waiting for our train tickets to New Mexico. And since then, I had never heard from him. So you go to New Mexico. Yep. And then what happens? Well, while we were in New Mexico, we lived in a battered women's shelter. Mm -hmm. And I remember it, it was very weird because I was the only dude there. Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of love for men right. in the battered women's shelter. <laughs> <laughs> and I hit puberty early, so I was starting to look like a man. Right. Like I, I needed to shave. A lot of angry women, I would imagine. A lot of angry women and me with my stubble on my upper lip. Uh -huh. Some of them had stubble on theirs, too. Okay. <laughs> and I remember specifically Thanksgiving being one of the weirdest experiences because they had a common law, or not a common law, that was just a common area, mm -hmm. is what I meant to say, uh, where you, know, you could watch TV and hang out. And they rented some movies, and I literally remember sitting and watching Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and Silence of the Lambs in between a rape victim and a battered wife as we just passed the popcorn. Mm -hmm. Real treats. <laughs> so, so you you lived there for a week, right? I lived in, in New Mexico. I lived I, I lived in Norman, Oklahoma, for a week. Okay. I lived in New Mexico for six months. And then then a private investigator. Yep. What happens there? Well, my mom decided I can't take you here and not be a decent mom. I've got to put you in school. Mm -hmm. So she ended up having to use some of my paperwork. Which is a pretty big clue if you're looking for somebody. When you mean using your paperwork, what, what do you mean? Like my school records. Okay. So she had to take my school record from the school that I'd been at prior uh -huh. in order to enroll me in school. Okay. Although to everyone else, I was going by a, a different name. So you had an alias? I did. My mom let me pick it. What was it? You know, she made it fun for me. Um, it was uh, Williams. Okay. Was the last name. She only let me change the last name. I wanted to change my full name. Well, what did you want to change it to? I want to be Rock Ace Williams. Okay. <laughs> Thought it sounded pretty cool at, at 11, you know. Was that because of you were a res fans of wrestling? Uh, well, this was before The Rock was a wrestler. Okay. I just thought Rock sounded pretty tough, and my initials would be Raw. Okay. <laughs> Which wasn't about the, the show Monday Night Raw. I am a big pro wrestling fan, uh -huh. and I was in that era, too. Uh, but... Uh, it was just because I thought Raw sounded pretty badass too. You know, for a guy that is, you're 33, right? Yeah. You you could have been, you, you, you people could, I mean, you act like you're about 60. I mean, I mean that as a compliment. I mean that as a compliment. Like, your, your energy is almost from a different era. Sure. If, has people said that to you before? I'm just old women that are trying to sleep with me. Okay. So you're, you're in New Mexico for six months, and yep. a private investigator then under, uh, uh, yeah, I was. Discovers you guys, right? I remember I was in the bathroom and uh, I it's hear your noise. It, 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 yeah, and our, we, we lived in a weird place where the Battered Women's Shelter kind of had sort of a halfway house type apartment uh -huh. situation 
where you could go and they'd give you a house and they'd give you like work to do in exchange for the rent. Mm -hmm. So my mom was kind of like the handy lady mm -hmm. around the apartment complex in exchange for rent. And so I'm living there and I'm coming out of the bathroom because I hear noises and I'm like, I want to see what's going on. And I hear them reading my mom her rights. So I walk out of the bathroom, my mom's in handcuffs. She gets taken away. I get flown to Florida where my dad lives and see her one time over the next eight years in the presence of a lawyer for an hour. How do you feel towards your mom at that, at that stage of your life? Well, you know, I remembered growing up and things being very tough with my dad. Mm -hmm. What was tough with your dad? I mean, I remember physically watching him hit her when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so Did he ever hit you? Um, once when I was in high school, and it was just because I dared him to. Mm -hmm. It was a weird situation where uh, he was disciplining my sister, and she was screaming, and I thought something bad was happening. So I walked in. I was like, what the hell's going on? And he goes, well, I'm going to deal with you next if you don't leave me alone. And I was like, well, then deal with me now. And so he came at me. He didn't really punch me. He kind of did a kind of a half-hearted punch just because his son challenged him. And I think he was like, well, I, I have to do this or I'm backing down. Were you the, had the role of being the protector in the house? Yeah, that, that happened after my parents' divorce. When I was basically from five years on, because my mom would get involved with terrible men, mm -hmm. so I would always see myself as the man of the house and the guy that kind of had to take care of her. Mm -hmm. And she had like a string of bad men, right? Sure. Yeah, her second husband was uh, abusive towards me. And mm -hmm. in what way? Physically? Oh, or, yeah, he used or, to beat the hell out of me. I remember one time when I was six years old, uh, I was playing with my uncle, who was always my best friend, mm -hmm. still is to this day. He's only six years older than me. My mom got pregnant her senior year in high school. Mm -hmm. So her youngest brother basically turned into my big brother, although he's my uncle. And I remember we were playing in my grandma's house with my uncle, and it was time to go. So my stepdad goes, get your stuff, we're going to leave. And I was like, come on, I want to. can we play a little longer? And he goes, no, get inside. Then he goes inside. I think he can't see me. And I just learned how to flip people off. It's pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. And I flipped off the door, mm -hmm. just thinking, I'm getting my frustrations out. Did not think he could see me. No way I would have done if he could see me. Apparently he did see me. He was looking out, I guess. But he didn't say anything until my mom, sister, and I went home. Then my mom and sister go out grocery shopping, and it's just me and that was his name. And then he erupts, and he's like, your little motherfucker, I saw what you did. And he went outside, and not getting a switch, we've all heard stories of switches, he gets a full-on tree branch. I'm six years old at the time, the guy breaks it in three pieces over my six-year-old body, and then uh, super glues it together while giggling, uh, letting me know he you know, was going to have it there to do it again. How do you, how, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? I think you escape. Like when he's not there, I, I had a pretty vivid imagination. And I think a lot of it was just you mentally start escaping when the guy's not there. Uh, and when he is there, you avoid him at all costs. So usually if you're in an abusive situation, like they're not showing up at home going, who can I fuck up today? What they're doing is they're in an irritable state. And so you try to stay out of that bubble because if you poke the bull, he's gonna come after you. So you try to stay away from the bull so that he can't even get at you. Have you gotten help with all this? I mean, because what happened? You, you, did you, have you? Nope. You're kidding me. No, I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> you say that, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I, I, I think I, I, I still have issues, I think, with self-doubt and a lot of uh, just esteem issues. I argue with myself when I do well about whether or not I'm doing well. And Give me an example. You do uh, well, you just did a great stand-up set. You know, I've got, a, yeah, I, I've got a great stand-up set, it goes well, but one little part of it didn't go as well. I beat myself up over that because I'm used to my whole life being told in some way, shape, or form that I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so that happens. That doesn't mean that I don't revel in the success. I still love when things go well, but in the back of my mind, there's still that nagging thing. Like when you got the Reader's uh, 2013 Best Stand-Up. Sure. Which, you know, the Reader is like LA Weekly or uh, Yeah, that's Time a Out, big accolade. Like people like Hannibal Chicago, Burris. Time Out, New York. I mean, you, gotten that award. he had gotten that award. What goes on in your head? Do you, do you accept it or do you try to push it away? Oh, I immediately went, son of a bitch, I can't have a bad set now. Because no. you go up with these open mics with all the other comics that weren't named that. 
and people introduce you. An audience is sitting out there watching, they go, the best stand-up comedian in Chicago. And then instead of people watching you for fun, they go, oh, the best, huh? Well, let's compare it to everything I've ever seen in this city. What about other stand-ups? Do they give you shit for it? I, some of them did right away, and thank God they did, because I wanted them to give you shit. Because it, it's a very locker room atmosphere, mm -hmm. the stand-up comedy world. And if they don't give you shit, then you assume that in their minds they're going, fuck this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? If they give me shit, then they realize that I don't think it's as big a deal. Because it's not that big a deal. You know, I still don't know how I'm paying electricity this month. You know, the, the Reader Award's not going to pay that. Have you tried it? Have you tried to take it to the Jewel and see if they would give you like $25? I've done it with drink tickets, which I often get paid in, so mm -hmm. doesn't work with those. Um, tell me a little the difference between doing a, a, a good show in stand-up and doing a good show in improv and doing a bad show in stand-up and a bad show in improv. Sure. Well, um, the big difference for me between stand-up and improv is you're going to war with a platoon or you're going to war by yourself. Uh, a war or to a party or whatever when you know it depends depends on the audience and how you're feeling but uh, with stand-up I can go out and have a killer show at the end of the night though I I go home by myself I can't hang out in in the lobby I can't talk about how this awesome moment was shared between me and another person that created it because it was just me that created it so even when it's awesome it's still pretty lonely now you do share the moments with the audience but it's a different shared experience with an audience member because they might go up and be like, oh, that story you told, I related to it, I thought it was funny. And that feels amazing. But it's different because they didn't create it. They weren't up there vulnerable and scared, sinking or swimming. And how do you do, deal with the loneliness when you just did stand-up? Do you drink? Do you eat? Do you, do you go play Xbox? You know, it depends on, on what's going on. What I tend to do is, and I think it's because I have an addictive personality, is if I have a really good stand-up set, I try to find another place that I can get up and do another set that night. Now, are you hoping to like top the set you just did or bomb so you can medicate from the great set you just did? I don't know, I just know I want more. Okay. At that point, I just want more, it felt good. It's almost like if you are having a few drinks and you got a nice buzz going, you're like, I feel great. You wanna grab that next drink, not to get drunker, but you wanna maintain that buzz. But then sometimes, you drink too many too fast and you're not maintaining that buzz and then you're that asshole at the party. And all you did was you just wanted to keep feeling good. And that happens sometimes, you end up bombing and it's to me the same thing as becoming that asshole at the party. You just ruined your good feeling. So what if you bomb and stand up and yeah. bomb and improv? Can we, uh, compare those two. When I bomb and improv it doesn't hurt nearly as bad. Because when I bomb and improv I got some other people that we can go off stage and go, fuck that sucked. And we might both feel terrible that it sucked, but it sucked together, you know? And I think it's just like anything. I mean, if, if you're the victim of a crime, but it's you and somebody else getting held up at this convenience store, it's less traumatic, because at least you and that person can go out and have coffee and be like, we went through this together. As opposed to, I was held up by myself, thought I might die. I can't explain it to anyone else. I think maybe it's the same reason alcoholics have meetings because they can share what they went through with somebody else. Other people just didn't go through it. So what do you do when you have that bad uh, stand-up set? You try to get up again. <laughs> it's the same damn solution to good but or bad. But not that nice. Oh yeah. Really? Damn straight. So your response to a good show is I'm gonna get up again. Yep. And your response to a bad show is I'm gonna get up again. Yeah, I'm gonna get up again because I want that bad feeling to go away. And if I, if I have a terrible set, I go up somewhere else and then I crush it. I'm still upset about that terrible set, but I know I'm not a terrible comedian because uh, the last thing I did comedy-wise went well. So I'm at least is good your, enough to Is your self-worth based on the last set you did? Not always. The more you do stand up, I think, the more you get away from that. But sometimes it still happens because you think of yourself in the people that saw you's eyes. Maybe it's not my total self-worth, but I still feel like, oh man, I could have done better. But that seems like you, you, that you always have that. I could have I done do. better. And maybe that's why I have to keep getting up. Um, then when you're younger, your, your uncle who you talked about yeah. got, got you turned on to dirty comedy, right? Him and just finding it, when my, a lot of them just when my parents were gone, mm -hmm. got me into dirty comedy too. Because my dad would have a tape or a cassette that I wasn't allowed to listen to. And what was that tape or cassette? Um, I remember early on, it was well, with my uncle, 
We stole my dad's eight tracks of Cheech and Chong. Mm -hmm. Which was considered dirty back then. Oh, yeah. Today, it's, it's pretty damn tame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that. I remember specifically a sketch that they did where they're teaching a kid to play piano and they threaten to bust his kneecaps if he doesn't get it right. And I think a lot of times, though, what I laughed at as a kid, I didn't understand all of the humor, but I knew bad words. You weren't supposed to say them. And I'd laugh at them. Just because, I, you, oh, I can't believe he's doing this thing he's not supposed to do. Were you not allowed to say bad words in your house? Wasn't supposed to, no. Okay, did you get hit if you said bad words? Depended on where I was and who was there. Mm -hmm. My mom hated hitting or spanking me. Mm -hmm. It destroyed her to do it. Mm -hmm. But um, my grandpa, oh man, he'd whip that belt out faster than anything. And it wasn't full-on abuse. I think it was that era's, uh -huh. the way you spanked a right, kid. Right, But it was soft, so... We call that soft abuse. Too. Yeah. 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 He would go from zero to 60, sitting across the room, to suddenly, like he had a superpower, standing... Like, I would be standing here, looking at him across the room, and before I even knew it, not only would he be over here by me, I would be lifted into the air, his belt would be off, folded in two, and going 90 miles an hour on my back. How do you deal with not being a violent person after what you lived through, and not? And how do you deal with your anger? Because I would imagine I, I didn't get. I was just emotionally abused. Right. I'm angry. How do you deal with your anger? Well, you know, I think a lot of it is uh, something. Something really changed with me when I I came to terms with telling my story. Mm -hmm. Because then because it I, comes out very easily. There's it, no shame about it. There's no like I've got to protect these people. Yeah. Well, you know, for me. Uh, I was a kid. If you do sh terrible things to a kid, then uh, you know I'm, I can't go back and beat the guys up. That's not going to solve it, mm -hmm. you know. But I can tell the story. And yeah, you did this shitty thing. It's going to come out. And if you're pissed off that I'm saying it, well, you shouldn't have done it. You know. That, Are you ever worried that someone hears this story and, and your mom confronts you or or one of her? I'm terrified of it. Mm -hmm. But I'm also. It's how I get through it. I think is the, the first time I became comfortable telling these stories, I walked out of a room, and it was hard telling them, and it still is not easy. Where did you tell them when you say it? The first time I told it was uh, for uh, a show called Impress These Apes, mm -hmm. and it was a callback. And all my stand-up now is primarily stories, mm -hmm. me telling stories about terrible things that have happened. But back then, it was just me doing silly bits. Like, I don't know, like I like to use Astro Glide when I fuck the Jetsons' dog. Right. Um, <laughs> but... Then uh, they told us for callbacks for this show to come in, and the assignment was to tell a tall tale, but it should be based on a true experience. And as I'm trying to make up a tall tale based on a true story, I go, you know what, the kidnapping story sounds unbelievable. I'm just going to tell a straight up true story. But they told us they weren't going to laugh in the callback. It wasn't live. They were recording it, and they didn't want laughs on the recording. So I went in, scared to death to tell the story, but going, I'm going to do it. And I tell the story, nobody laughs. They told me they weren't going to, but I tried to make the story funny, so I hoped they would. And they didn't. I walked out feeling naked, ashamed. These are people in the comedy world that I knew I was going to see again. I never wanted to see them again. I was like, I want to move, I want to get out of here, whatever. I wanted to get out of the business. Yeah. I found out the next day from my friend Greg, who was a stage manager, he said right after callbacks were done, they went and Steve Gatlin the runs it. He said, well, Jamie's in, who else? Like, they loved it. And it made me suddenly go, maybe I can share these things. And then two friends of mine, uh, Tia Ayers and Junior Stopka, shortly after, started a, a night called the Depression Hour. And it was an open mic where you weren't allowed to do regular comedy. You could only tell sad, true stories. And it became like therapy. Comics, people that weren't comics that just wanted to confess terrible things came in. I remember one guy came in. And he told a story about his friend who was dying. He was terminally ill. He could not bring himself to visit his friend. His friend kept contacting him going, man, I'm dying. All I want to do, you're my best fucking friend. I just want to see you again before I die. He had a year to do it, couldn't do it. His friend died and he never went to see him. And like people sharing these stories, you walk out not only with your own stuff, but having just this this shared moment with everyone, and I'd walk out feeling just great. But I'd also use that to try to make the story funny. Now, when you tell this story about the, the guy repeating the story about yeah. 
you're getting teary-eyed. Yeah. What's, what's the sadness it about? It broke my heart for him. And it also broke my heart knowing the weight that all of this must have been on him. Just like your... your yes. Yeah, exactly. And I, like I would tell the story, I remember the first time I uh, went in there, I used to tell a story about how I learned not to be racist. My mom taught me not to be racist, not because everybody's great, but she showed me a piece of shit of almost every freaking race. You know, I had my, my white redneck step, uh, my dad that, that beat her, and then I had uh, my stepdad that beat the shit out of me. He was from Jordan, Jordan, and then she had a black common-law husband who raped her while she was pregnant with my brothers. So uh, I'm not racist because uh, every damn race has a piece of shit. Like, I told a story <laughs> like that, and that was tough to tell, but I learned how to... What was tough about it? The racist part or, the, no, uh, or, or revealing the secrets of yeah, the family? Yeah, just telling, because I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. Comedy, you gotta have somewhat of a tough exterior, I think. So tell me, tell me what's the most difficult thing that you had to, to, to say and how you turned it into comedy. I think the hardest thing, and it's a very difficult beginning of a joke, is uh, the way I started out is, um, uh, just cause a guy rapes your mom doesn't mean he can't teach you how to take care of your sneakers. Uh, which uh, is a weird thing to say. Uh -huh. Uh, but it's a true thing. Uh, this guy, uh, uh, his name's Charles Smotherman. I won't hide his name because they say you hide names to protect the innocent, but uh, not really innocent. Kind of a piece of shit, this guy. Um, but it uh, doesn't change the fact that to this day I take care of my shoes pretty well. They last a long time, and it's because this guy taught me. Mm -hmm. now, uh, so when you take a hard subject, because I love, I love honesty in comedy, I love the honesty in your comedy, when you take a subject like that, okay, that that it's got to have an emotional charge to you, oh, yeah. a lot of feelings, a lot of stuff. How do you then go? Okay, I'm going to find the funny in that. Is it distance? Is it do you sit down and write? I don't write anymore. Meaning, I have a story I want to tell. I may write down bullet points. That's as far as I get. Then I get up in front of an audience and I try to have a conversation with my stories. I change who I am in the story, or, or I react based on their reactions. So if I say something and people are like, like they're shocked and be like, I know, I was fucking there. And that gets a laugh because they're able to step into my shoes and I'm able to then relive the story and hopefully take, the, take them along with me. Okay, so that's, that, that works for the first time. Sure. But what if, you know, in, 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 in stand-up, you're, you're always, you know, paring down and getting it tighter and yeah. tighter and tighter. So then where do you go from there? So maybe it kills the first time. Now you've got to re-improvise. Yeah, well, I, I, through muscle memory, and doing it over and over again. That's what open mics are. For me, they're the gym. And so I take this story, and I'll try to remember what does work, but what'll happen now and then is, is I'll just say something in a riff, and usually it feels good enough. That's maybe why I need to get up again when it goes well, because I've still got it kind of in my muscle. I just told this story, it crushed, it's a brand new story. I'm going somewhere else, and I want to tell it again, because the good feelings when people laugh or react, they tend to stay with me. And so I, I never go back and just write them down. I just try to tell them over and over again. What I may do is go on back and watch a recording of it to try to remember some moments. But even when I'm watching the recording, I'm not rewriting it down. So it's interesting because what you do in stand-up is almost opposite about uh, of what you do with comedy sports. Right. It's very different. So tell us the, the difference. Um, well, comedy sports is... It's an all-ages all, all show, which means it's clean. So, you know, you can take your grandma, you can take your, you know, little kids and not have to worry about explaining something on the ride home. It's not a kid's <laughs> show, you know, and we try not to say family-friendly because that makes people think Chuck E. Cheese, mm -hmm. and it's not. I, I use a lot of dark innuendo mm -hmm. in my comedy sports shows. But there's parameters in there comedy are. sports. You're not going to talk about rape compared right. to new shoes. I mean, that's not going to happen in a comedy sports show. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, still, you're dealing with relationships, and you're going on a journey, and you're reacting more so, I think, in that journey because you're inhabiting a character. You don't have to cuss. I don't know. I'm surprised that I rarely get in trouble for accidentally saying something dirty in one of those well, shows. What, what, is, what would you accidentally say dirty in a comedy sports show? Uh, any cuss word mm -hmm. um, or anything that is too graphic or gross. Um, I've, you know, shit or fuck. And you've never gotten to know Oh, I've gotten them. It happens. Uh -huh. But it's very rare. I've done between 500 and 1,000 comedy sports shows and maybe three times mm -hmm. done something 
that was dirty. They have something called the brown bag foul, which is a brilliant uh, idea. The way the show works is you've got two teams that are competing against each other, but the deal is that we have a large ensemble that the teams are drawn from. So while they're technically competing against each other in the show, we're all one big group. I liken it to WWE, but improv. <laughs> you know, wrestling, wrestling. Right, right. Because yeah, while you're supposedly competing, it's not really about the competition. The person on this team, the next show on the blue team, might be on the the red team, the next show competing against the guy he just played with. So there's no sore feelings if you lose backstage. No. Oh, good. The good. way we we say it is, uh, we play to win, but we don't care if we lose. Mm -hmm. And. You know, we, you know that you might have to play with that person you're playing against the next show, so being an asshole doesn't really help you. You know, it's interesting because I, I love those people over at Comedy Sports Chicago, some of the nicest people. It really is a family over there. And what is it with Comedy Sports? Certainly, they're still, I think, the stepchild of the improv community. There is a stigma about Comedy Sports, and I used to have it. Well, what, what stigma did you have about Comedy Sports? That it was, the, the fact that it was short form, when you moved to Chicago, you start, your instructors a lot of times are people that have been around. And you started like Second City. I started Second City um, in their comedy studies program. Right. And I didn't have a lot of people badmouth the place, but when they talk about it, it was almost like there was like a, oh, and then you also do this. Don't, don't down talk it. Don't be too good to, to do it. And when they say that, you go, oh, well, then it's something that a lot of people think they're too good for. And so in your mind, you start thinking that. Um, and then you hear other people, you go, what's so bad about that place? And they go, oh, well, it's all ages, it's clean, and, and you go, oh, well, I'm an artist. If they tell me I have to be clean, then they don't get that it's art. Um, and then you get in your mind, you go, oh, and it's all ages, so it's probably real hacky. Oh, it's short form. They do puns there. What a bunch of hacks. And you form this opinion without even seeing the damn show. And so I remember specifically about four years ago, I got hired to stage manage to run lights and sound on Thursday nights, pay me... Uh, just uh, like 15, 20 bucks a show maybe. And I was thinking, well, I'm broke. I'm working at a call center. I moved here to do comedy. It was never a hobby. Never had a full-time job since I've been here. I was here to do comedy, and so it was like every dollar counted. So I thought, okay, I'll go and I'll watch this piece of crap. Hacks do their little joke show. <laughs> and I'll pay my light bill. <laughs> and I'll be damned if they didn't win me over. I go in, and I'm watching their shows thinking, Oh, what a load of crap. And I remember, did you know Mike Enriquez? Yes. He passed away not too long ago. What an amazing I man. I knew of him. I didn't Full. know him personally, but a he, great reputation. Oh, my God. He changed so many people's lives. That guy was fantastic. In what way? His positivity. He always saw you as being better than you thought you were. And he never outright told you that, but you could just, I mean, there was something about that guy's demeanor that you walk in, and I'm a very new improviser. I would never hang out backstage when I was stage manager. Because you were scared? Or? First off, it's a bunch of improvisers back there doing bits, and I'm like, oh, we all want attention. Not going to try to compete. But and, and because of that, though, I kind of blocked myself off. And I was shy, and I am very shy, especially when I first meet people. And I was like, I'm not going to vie for attention. So I'd hang out in the sound booth, then I'd give them places. But Mike would come out and talk to me, and he always treated me like a peer. You know, uh, I never had to earn respect. It was there already, and that was really neat. But I remember one time, right off the bat, there was something very positive about all the improv there. And I remember he came out as a police officer, and I just remember his this line, and it still sticks with me. Uh, he comes out and he just goes, you have the right to remain awesome. And I, <laughs> just so silly, and I just, I think maybe because I've dealt with so much dark stuff, you need some joy in your life to offset that. And that place is all about the joy. And I think because I have that in my life, maybe that's why talking about the dark stuff is okay, because I have this joy to offset it so that I don't lose my mind. Okay, so we're going to do we're going to try a little joy too cuz I yeah. struggle with joy and I'm I'm envious of comedy sports because people over there really have joy. I they mean, do. It, you know, it's amazing. You know, and I'm sure it's a dysfunctional family like any improv right. theater, but it just seems like the people, yes. You know what blew my, when I went through their training program, because I think a lot of times when you're in a training program, you have, there are two, court, two routes you can take. There's the hobbyist that just wants to kind of take the classes uh, just for fun. You might build some social skills, but you're not really in this for the long haul. The people that are in our way. 
Kind of, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Get, get out of my way. Right, and then, you know what, I, and I gotta say this, Remember, those are the people that you want to come see your shows. Maybe don't be a dick to them. Right. Uh, it's not their fault that they have a life. Right. <laughs> and uh, and, then and, and insurance. Right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then there are those that, that really take it seriously, and they want feedback. They go out and they go, I want you to give me the hard notes. Beat me to a pulp. Uh, you know what, though? To get good a lot of times, to get to the next level, sometimes you don't need to get beaten to a pulp. You need somebody to believe in you. And once you have that confidence in yourself, you're gonna make a bold move because you're not scared of failing because somebody believes you've got that potential. And where did you get that? I got that from comedy sports. That place believed in me when nobody really did. I can't get a lot of the, the bigger places to take a look at me. And I've done a lot of what I've done. I think I've created a lot of my own shows here in Chicago. And a lot of it's been based on the faith that that place first put in me. Great, so we're gonna improvise now. We're running a little. So John, we'll go about like five or seven on this scene, okay? Um, great, so uh, we're gonna take a suggestion. What would great. you like to take? What, um, what do you like to take? You know, I, I like a, just a word that's fun to say, like cornucopia. Okay, great, <laughs> so we have a word that's fun to say, like cornucopia. Anticipation. Anticipation, okay, now, when you hear anticipation in terms of suggestion, how do you break it down? I think uh, just waiting for something. So you will, your choice will be then? I'll probably be excited. Okay. Something's coming up. Okay, so that's, so you emotionalize the suggestion? Is that, a, is that a pretty common in your head? Yeah, you know what? Um, it's a, th there's a, a thing at comedy sports we do. Uh, we don't do it in every scene, but sometimes you put on like a, a costume piece or something, and I like the, th and a lot of times if you wear a hat or a wig or something, it immediately makes you feel different. And with a suggestion, I like to try to wear it. Okay. In that same way, if and that makes okay? sense. Yeah, we don't have wigs or hats here. Right. No, right. but I, that's what I mean. Right. I don't mean, but I mean, take the suggestion as it was one. I know, I was right. kidding. Okay. <laughs> do you feel like people have judgment when they're like, oh, Absolutely. oh they got wigs and hats Damn over straight there. they do. Okay. They forget, hey, guess what we're doing? We're playing pretend, and that's kind of fun. Right. Great. Okay, so great. We'll do that. John, you could uh, bring the lights down just a little, and uh, or the kill the house lights, and let, let's go. Let's let's. Uh, let's improvise. All right. Great. Phil, Phil, I, I, I told you I, I pick you up in ten minutes. You, you weren't at the, you weren't out by the car. I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, they haven't given me my results yet. Okay. <laughs> I know, but but I got a, I got a pizza to pick up and stuff, and then oh, I, I gotta I, go home and change. I got a date tonight. Oh my gosh, you got a date? Yeah, yeah. I understand. I understand. Are you bringing the pizza on your date? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a smooth move. I've never thought of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, I just, I want to know. You know? Okay. Okay. They're, they're how, how long do you think it's gonna take? I don't know. I, okay. I came in. They had me draw a turtle, and then they brought wait, wait, it wait, in. They had you do what? They had me draw a turtle. <laughs> I thought you went in for type one diabetes. Oh. They had no, me no. draw a turtle. Yes, they had me draw a turtle. <sighs> I think they think I, I, I might have mental issues. I, yeah. If they asked you to draw a turtle. Yeah, I don't know. If they asked you to draw a turtle, it's, it's much serious. They didn't even tell me what it was. Like, it felt like you're kidding. Like me. a reverse roar shock or something. <laughs> Good. What does this mean? By the way, good news, don't have the diabetes. Okay. <laughs> they did this to my dad. Same thing. Jesus Christ. They, they institutionalized him. Son of a bitch. Yes. You might be schizophrenic, you might be bipolar. Oh, I, I still did think you I'm color, Did you color in, in the turtle? No, they only gave me the pen. Oh, fuck. You're kidding me. Did you ask for other colors? No, I didn't. Oh, You're shit, I blew that. I didn't even know that was okay. part of it. Okay, yes, it is. I just got so excited to draw I know, a turtle. I know, What'd you do with the pen? What'd I, you do with the pen? I, get rid of it. Oh, shit. Get, get rid of it. Oh, get, should I wipe my fingerprints off? No, yes, no. Get the fingerprints off. Just get rid of it, Phil. Get rid of it. When the doctor comes, I'll take care of it. Now, Phil, Phil, please. Don't stick it in your butt crack. Phil, what Fair the? Fair enough, it was a bad choice. <laughs> 
kind of pizza did you get, Terrence? I got pepperoni, all right? It's for me and Sally. No, it's good. Okay. It's not for me. I don't like it. Okay. okay. I don't like the pepperoni. Okay. I think it's a cliche choice, but okay. <laughs> I mean, for pizza. You know what? You don't have time to judge right now. Okay. I'm just saying, have you tried a sunflower tomato? I have. It, 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 I don't, it doesn't digest well, okay? Oh, sure. Just goes right through you. <laughs> Looks like clots of blood in your poop. No, no, please. Okay? So I'm going to go to the... You might be institutional. Well, Jesus they Christ, let's get in the car and fucking go. Oh, we can't do We could get arrested. Well, if I... Did uh, you sign something? I signed my turtle drawing. I thought it was... That's enough. That's enough. Stand that is enough, Phil. They can... Today, it's D, your DNA is all over that turtle drawing. I didn't come all over my turtle drawing. I didn't say that. When you wrote, okay, your finger... Your, this stuff in your fingers, it goes on that so they can trace it. There's nothing in my fingers. No. Phil, you got to believe me here. There... The pores are the most uh, absorbent. They, they will, the toxins come out of it. They'll take that turtle drawing, they'll do a DNA test, and they'll, they'll, they'll get to our house before we get there. How bad can it be in there anyway? Phil. I mean, if they're going to take Phil. me away, my, I got a second mortgage just sitting on my goddamn shoulders. Phil. My dad went in there. How's he doing? <laughs> he makes keychains now. Out of leather? Yeah. <laughs> My dad used to do that too. They didn't put him in a home, he just chose. <laughs> he made one with my initials. Okay, Phil. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> All right. We've got, we've, we've, we've got to stay together on this. I thought about making him a teenage ninja, didn't do it. Okay, okay. Great. It's really great, okay? Your dad drew a turtle and they put him away? Yes. And that was back in the 80s when it was not as hard to be thrown in like it is today. Sure. <laughs> so when the doctor comes out, all right, I, let me do all the talking. You're okay. not going to say anything. It's gonna be, you're not my guardian or anything. You're just my ride. <laughs> you do it. Okay. Look. I'm trying to help you here, Phil. Sure. I don't want to see the same thing that happened to you happen to my dad. Okay. Okay? Yeah. When they come here, I want you to lie and say I am your guardian. Okay. Okay? Where are you going on your date? Yeah. I'm going back to her house. It's my second date. I hope to get lucky. She's taking you home on date two? Yes. I got cologne on. You didn't even notice. Oh, I noticed. When, you, when, you, when were you going to say something? Well, you know, when I got my turtle results. <laughs> obsession, and I like it. My dad used to wear obsession. I used to steal it from him. And not the whole bottle, just a couple of squirts. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm just a little nervous about the date, all right? You're nervous I've never me. had sex. What? I've never had what? sex. Yes. What? Yes. What? Yes. What? <laughs> Phil, yes, I've never had sex. Is she? Yes, she's experienced. That's good. You don't have to bust through that hymen. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Oh, that was a blast! Yes, you you bring so so much joy to to it. I just have fun playing. Uh huh. Just How do you do that? Because I struggle with having fun playing. A lot of, and I feel for me a lot of it. Just feels physical. Um, just the look on my face can make me feel completely different. Mm -hmm. And that just embodies the rest of it. And then, I, I don't know, I'll be honest, felt like I was just letting you do the lifting and I was just saying fun things. Okay, <laughs> great, I'm glad. Because um, I felt like, oh, am I playing too much? Because a lot of times I'll go to the, the aggravated guy, but I thought in this case, it, it seemed to, to work. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I think you made me react. Uh -huh. And for me, I'm always scared of initiations, mm -hmm. and so I think what I tend to do is instead of say something right off the bat, is I like to just make a face that is emotionally in a pause. And <laughs> that's an emotion. No, explain that. Um, so anticipation is our suggestion, and then we start. The lights go down, and I'm just here. So your eyes are bugged out, and your little yeah. mouth is open. And I try to like I feel like I'm still initiating something, and I give you something to react to when you see me. Mm -hmm. But then I'm going to filter whatever you say my reaction to that through the emotional state I've already put myself in. Mm -hmm. 
I guess. I don't think about it though. I just think anticipation. This is a fun face to make. Let's play. Okay, sad. Give me a sad face. Oh. <laughs> so you're kind of your eyes are a little. I try to physically on the inside feel sad, mm -hmm. and I think it comes on the outside. Maybe that's it. Because on the inside, when I have a feeling that I'm anxious and excited. Is that something you learned at comedy sports? It's something that I learned in. Um, I'm a classically trained actor, mm -hmm. and I was in graduate school for theater, and so I did things like uh, tremors. Which is weird, man. It's like Lamaze class, but way creepy. Tremors, what, what is it? Tremors is a thing where, and if you ever have an instructor do it, it just feels weird. Uh, they'll make you, like say you need to uh, get to the point where you're desperate and crying. Instead of trying to find a mental thing, like there are some classes that will make you mentally react a, a memory that you've had where you were there to get there. Instead, this technique is say to make your body react that way and then internally you'll start to react that way because your body goes oh when i'm doing this that means i feel this way so with tremors you might be making these types of sounds going <sighs> real creepy right um, <laughs> especially when you have a male instructor in a room full of females and they're like yeah now feel that just really get on the ground and go <sighs> it's freaking odd and i want to run away when that happens in a class because uh, I feel like somebody's putting some odd moves on somebody. I don't know. You did not like acting class or acting school because you said at one point you were you were making choices based on not getting notes. You know, um, my choice. Uh, here's what I didn't like, and I, there were some portions where'd that I go, loved. Where'd you go? I went to Oklahoma State. Okay. And at some point, and this wasn't every professor, but it was a lot of them. Um, what I noticed was a lot of these guys were people that had somewhat done okay in the professional world but then decided they wanted insurance. Mm -hmm. They wanted to raise a family and they wanted the comforts that being a university professor would provide them. And so while they're going back and teaching, a lot of the choices they're making, it seemed like it was a big pissing contest. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to prove to each other that they were good enough. For example, in college, I was in the lion in winter. Mm -hmm. There's no reason that a 25-year-old actor should play King Henry in the lion in winter. This doesn't get a 25-year-old actor to grow you know, they shouldn't have to deal with playing a 50-year-old at that point. As a lead role, why are we choosing this? We're choosing it because the director always wanted to play that role, and so now they're directing it and vicariously playing it through a 25-year-old kid. And instead of letting that kid take risks, make bold choices, they're yelling at him when he isn't making the choices they made. That was my experience. And, but, but it almost shut you down. You said it... Yes. I walked through because I wasn't... I sucked as King Henry. You know, the last guy to play it on a big stage is Patrick Stewart, and I'm 25, and if I can't pull that out because everybody in their classes is watching him do it as they prepare the set and they're doing their costume design, they're seeing what Patrick Stewart did in this role, and I'm 25, not living up to that dude. And my choices aren't great. They're not terrible, but they're not great. And I'm feeling like shit. The director, through nonverbal clues, is making me feel like shit. Other people, you know, you, you hear kind of good job, but there's a difference. You know when somebody's saying good job because they watched you in a play, and when they're saying good job because you changed how they feel because you did something different. And I was feeling the opposite of that, and it just sucked. I didn't look forward to it. All right, we're going to take some questions now from the audience. Uh, Great. About what we just did in our improv or Jamie in general. So, uh, back there. Yeah, um... Jimmy brought this up earlier, but I mean, it's you know, with so much going on. I mean, that that, that, that blows my mind. All this stuff, your past, <laughs> and sure, I know that comedy, for, even for me. I mean, every no one's life is perfect. I mean, comedy for me is awful. It's an escape sometimes. Absolutely. But what other ways are you to, to cope with it? Because like you can't, I can't do comedy seven nights a week, and then personally, you have to have other hobbies and like that. What helps you? I don't have a lot of hobbies other than comedy. I, I perform just about every night of the week, sometimes three to five shows in a day. But for me, I think because I'm doing so many different things, it stops me from burning out. Because uh, the improv I do with comedy sports stops me from burning out as a stand-up. Because while they're still comedy, they're different energies and they're different types of interactions. And then when I get burnt out because I'm doing a lot of comedy sports, I'm on the house ensemble over at the Annoyance and we're doing long form that has an incredible amount of freedom. McNabier kind of lets us do our improv, and that guy is incredible in his, the way he just puts faith in us 
and says, we're not cutting you, we're not letting you go. And so I didn't have to play in order to please him. I could go out there and take bold risks, the whole team could, and I get to do that, and it's a very different energy. Now and then I get to go out and do regular theater, that's a different energy. I'll get booked to storytelling shows, that's a different energy. And I think just trying to give yourself variety allows you to not burn out. And I don't know, this is fun. There are people that are lawyers straight out of law school working 100 hours a week. That's more than I'm working on comedy, and that shit seems kind of boring. <laughs> Great, another question? Right here? Um, you know, you talked about what, you know, how stand-up was lonely and how improv was better because you had more people. Well, what, would, what are the good parts of stand-up for you? Oh, man. When you come in and you, you tell a story, like all that dark stuff, I tell... I talk about that in my stand-up act in a way that uh, is usually uh, quite a bit funnier than, than the conversation <laughs> we had about it earlier. And to me, there's an incredible joy when somebody connects with you in that because for those moments, you're not alone. You know, maybe somebody went through something similar and they don't talk about it. And in that moment, they go, oh, wow, it's not just me. And then they might come up to me after the show and be like, I've been through similar stuff. And we're able to connect it in those moments. There's a joy in going, yeah, we got through that shit. We're all right. I think also for me, the reason I'm not genuinely insane going through those is while that stuff was happening, I was able to go, this isn't right. I didn't ever look at it and go, this is normal. This is supposed to be happening. If I thought that way, then I would be either dead or in prison right now. I knew it wasn't normal. And now I know when I'm in a relationship with someone else, I don't want them to go through that. Whether they're a friend, a lover, a child that I'm raising, don't have any kids, but you know, someday I'd like to be a dad and never have my kid go through any of that shit. I'm is, very, there, is there a fear that if you do have kids, you'll hit them like your dad? Nope, wow. not a fear at all. How, how why? Because I went through that and there's no justification to what happened. I know it was wrong. And I know there's no reason to do Do you ever fear like, oh God, I, I might do it? No. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I've never been in a relationship with a woman where I've come close mm -hmm. to being physically violent or really, I like to think, verbally abusive. I mean, we get both, I've been in obviously arguments. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody that's been in a relationship <laughs> for any period of time, you get into an argument, but I like to think I don't attack the person. Mm -hmm. And if I do, I'm very quick to try to ascertain. I think I'm analytical. I think maybe in the same way that I do comedy, it's like, what about that went right? What about that went wrong? And a lot of times, right after an argument, I try to think about why it went wrong, as opposed to making it all about me. I'll be like, oh, what did, that, what did I say that emotionally might hurt that person? Is that what I meant? A lot of times, like if you, if you write a sketch or, or you do a stand-up bit that is volatile, and it does get people upset, then you have to ask yourself after it goes wrong, did I mean to hurt those people? You know, it's, it's like, I'll have bits that deal with rape. And that's a tough topic to talk about. And there are a lot of rape jokes that I think are tasteless and offensive, but I have bits in my act that deal with that. And you have to go afterwards and go, oh, did I handle that topic in a way that it's important? Like, did I, like with rape, I think you can talk about rape in your act, but you shouldn't belittle the act or belittle the victim uh, or just make light of the fact that it's rape. I think if you do that, you're okay. A lot of times my point of view is it's a fucking terrible thing. But I'm able to, like I went to juvie for a weekend when I was 12 and I was with people who were violent criminals and I thought that I was going to get raped because they told me they were going to. And a lot of times I can tell that bit through the eyes of the kid going, oh shit, I'm in here for yelling at my mom. You know, uh, hopefully I don't get raped for yelling at my mom. <laughs> you know, and the point of view of that isn't at all that rape is a, something that is to take lightly. What, what, I feel like I'm getting off topic here. No. <laughs> uh, another question right here. So, um, other people have buckled under, you know, lesser amounts of stresses. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, sort of beating yourself up about success and rejection. Sure. How do you keep yourself from ever crossing too far that line? I mean, obviously you keep do going and you keep doing well. How have you maintained that distance from that? You know, I, I, I think I also praise myself a fair amount, too. Um, and I, I try to also look at the successes and what I'm doing well. I don't think you get very far in comedy without realizing what you're doing right and trying to continue that as well. At some point, I think 
with improv or stand-up, you become your own note-giver. And you've got to take a moment to celebrate when things go right as well. And I'll be honest with you, I think I'm pretty damn good at this comedy shit. <laughs> so, what do I you do say be- that, when you say that, do you believe that? Hell yeah! And how long did it take you to really believe that? You know, I'm not sure. I think early on. I knew I was good enough, that's why I moved here to do it. My whole life people have been telling me I'm funny. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference, you know, from people telling you you're funny and people that you have to do it, you know, uh, four or five times a week on a stage. Yeah, I think there are levels of things. First off, I hate not being good at something. And there are things that I've realized I'm just not good enough to really pursue. I used to want to play baseball. And I would go out every morning before lunch, uh, like during the summer, and I would hit 500 balls off of a tee to get good. And you know what, no matter how much work I put in, I just never was good enough to become a professional at baseball. And with comedy, when I started comedy, first off, you get instant notification whether or not you're funny. Laughs tell you right off the bat whether or not you're funny. And so I knew I was funny early on in front of audiences. When I was in college doing theater, the things that were comedic, I got huge laughs at right away. Those things worked for me. I knew I was funny. But I also, when I came here, got a very quick awakening that I wasn't super funny. But you find out from those people that are on those grand stages that are, you know, the people that are doing it for a living, it took them 5 to 15 to 20 years sometimes. And by assuming, oh, well, I'm going to take this place by storm in my first year, that is an insult to those people that, that are on those big stages that put in all that work to think, oh, well, why the hell couldn't they get it after a year or two? I learned that pretty quick. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting off the point. But uh, I don't know. At some point, I think you get good enough at it that you go, I'm good enough that I can get great. But I'm, and I'm not so bad that I feel like shit. Because some weeks I feel great and other weeks I feel like, uh, yeah. you know, it, it like ebbs and flows with me. And also, though, you put this amount of time in, you can't just quit. Right? I've been doing this for five years. What am I going to do now? It's too late. This is all I got. If I got to start over somewhere else, I'm just going to jump off a building. Um, I, I want to ask you some, some quick questions because we got to wrap this up. One is, when you, when you do stand-up and you go back and doing improvising, how do you not make it jokey? Because there's, there's two different mindsets. Well, you know, I think I, I do make jokes. I think you make jokes as the character instead of making jokes commenting on the scene because like I think a lot of what I said that was getting laughs was as a character right talking about turtle drawing you talking about your dad dealing with this we're getting laughs and a lot of it came from reaction like when you stuck the pen in it's like butt crack and then I forgot what you said but it was a reaction from that well I think as stand up you're doing stand up as a character as well and in improv a lot of what I say yeah it is a reaction and as a stand up I've started to be able to try to do my stand-up also as a reaction because my stand-up is a character. Yes, I'm telling jokes, but I'm also telling stories and able to relive. And a lot of times if you tell it, you can tell a joke in a scene as a character, but instead of me saying like, uh, for example, okay, like I, I told that one joke, uh, just a stupid one-liner like, yeah, I like to use Glide when I'm fucking the Jetsons dog. That is a straight-up joke. And if you say that in a scene, you're an asshole that's making a joke in the scene. <laughs> but if we're in character, and we're two people that don't know a lot about sex, and you pull out Astroglide, and they go, Astroglide? What do you use that to fuck the Jetsons dog? And you're like, or, or you're like, yeah, it's a sex, sexual lubricant. And I go, what do you mean a sexual lubricant? What do you fuck the Jetsons dog with that? And you go, no, no, no. Like, I'm making a joke, but I'm making it as the character, so we're able to laugh, and I didn't sell the character or the scene out. Mm-hmm. When I started improv, this is back in the late 80s, if anyone, no, no one, it was improv, and then you get to Second City. The thought of anyone doing stand-up was like you were selling out. Now, more than ever, improvisers are doing stand-up. Yeah. Why do you think improvisers need to be doing stand-up? Or do they? For me... And I've been very impressed with improvisers. A lot of improvisers come to my open mic, I think because it's a very improviser-friendly open mic, because it is a comedy sports on Monday nights. And I think as an improviser, first off, 
it's scary as shit. It's just you. But if you think of the audience as your scene partner, you're going to get a lot farther with it. I think it allows you to think comically. And a lot of times I think we're scared in improv to be funny because we're told not to be funny a lot of times. But the audience is buying a ticket to laugh. They are. As much as we can say, don't try to be funny. The, the audience that doesn't know training, that isn't a student of improv, they're showing up to laugh. And you do an improv show where nothing's funny, they want their money back. What does don't try to be funny mean to you? Because you're also a teacher. Yeah, and you know what? I try to be funny. I think it means don't sell out the scene for your joke. Don't make the joke more important than the scene, I guess. That doesn't mean don't be funny. It means don't force the funny, I guess. And it's easier said than done. Because we're given, I, I think it's a, a bullshit line, don't try to be funny. I think it means do all the improv stuff first. And if you can't be funny without doing basic good improv. The agreement, the yes. environment, the yeah. relationship, the emotion. Yeah, if the funny stuff makes that, the bottom fall out of that stuff, then you're fucking the scene. But if you're able to be funny while doing that stuff, that's when the good stuff happens. I, I don't know, because I, I don't think I'm thinking about being funny when I'm doing a scene. I'm thinking about playing. And when you play, funny happens. Usually when I'm teaching, I try to teach people to be human in the scene. Because the comedy that we really laugh at, that resonates with us a lot of times, is in us identifying the human part of ourselves with the human part of what's going on, going, yes, I have done that, I have been there. Or if I was there, holy shit, I would react that way. And I love that. And for me, maybe that's why I get laughs without selling out the scene is because I'm trying to react in that way of, what would I do if I was there? Oh shit, I would react that way. So maybe I vicariously get to play that character. You do a lot of things. You do you, you perform 500 nights a year. And there are only 365 in one. Right. So I, don't I, know how I, do I, I don't know how you do it either. <laughs> what do you want to do? You, you, you got a stand-up career. You're only 33 years old. You, you're at the Annoyance. You're at comedy sports. What does Jamie Campbell want to do? And here's the thing. When you first start off doing it, a lot of people say, you know what I would love to do with comedy? Be able to just pay the bills and just do comedy. I'm there. For about six months I've been there. And so, to the me that started comedy, I made it, that's all I wanted. I fucking did it. <laughs> I'm broke as shit and terrified. <laughs> so, for me, the ultimate dream is to be able to do all the, I'd love to do television and film, but as long as I'm doing comedy and I'm connecting with an audience in those moments, I'd love to be able to do that every day. The people that I work with, I'd love them to be my best friends. So all the people that I get to do comedy with and hang out with that I love, I'd love to be able to do some sort of project where I'm getting to work with them every day and that I'm making enough money that I can have a family, a home, and raise a kid that isn't going to live a shitty life. They're going to be taken care of. They're going to have their needs met, get to be a well-adjusted kid without having to deal with, I don't have the right school supplies because dad's jokes didn't pay for them. <laughs> if I could get to there... <laughs> I would be a pig in shit. I'd be so happy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And thank you, guys. And there you have it. Can you believe it? Another episode of Improv Nerd. I think it's like episode 76. It might be, but they don't even let me go near the numbers. They just say, say it's the Jamie Campbell episode. So I would like to thank our guest, Jamie Campbell, for being our guest today and being so honest. My God, what pain that guy's gone through and just how he deals with it is just amazing. And I love talking about comedy sports because I got to just tell you something. I'm a person that is so searching for joy in his life, not only on stage, but in his life. I've never... I've never seen a school that can teach joy, and I don't know how they do it, but I, I, I'd really like to get a little part of it. I'd also like to thank our, our home base here, the people who make us feel like rock stars, and I'm talking about, you know it, Stage 773 here in Chicago. Also, my producer, Ben Caprero. You wouldn't be hearing my voice right now if it wasn't for Ben Caprero. He's the one who makes it sound so slick and so professional. Also, you know this. You figured this out because you know what? You're smart people. We're on feralaudio.com. And you know we aren't alone because it's a podcast collective. So there's people like Chelsea Peretti, name dropping. Todd Berry, name dropping. Dan Harmon, name dropping. Uh, all their podcasts are on there. So check that out. That's 
feralaudio.com. Uh, we've already talked about my award-winning classes, The Artist Low Comedy, and my Improv Nerd blog. If you want tips to become a better improviser, both on stage and off, because they're related, go to jimmycarane.com. You're going to love it. Uh, also, any information on classes and me, we've got a new website, so check it out, jimmycarane.com. Also, this is the part where I beg you, beg you. I'm on my knees right now. You can't see it, but you can hear it in my voice. Please, please, please like our Facebook page. All you have to do is go to Improv Nerd, find it on Facebook page, and hit this little button. And call, it says like. Uh, I also want to thank our sponsor, Hotel Lincoln, uh, and I want to thank you for listening because without it, I'm just a guy talking to another improviser, you know, and uh, recording this part in my in my basement so um i really appreciate it and i also appreciate all the wonderful emails you guys send and and requests uh, who who i go for a therapist i really appreciate that because it means I, i'm i'm doing something uh, i'm doing something good i guess uh yes i am doing something good that's my affirmation jimmy you're doing something good jimmy you're doing something good uh but until next time remember walk don't run Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is... Is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. (laughs) 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a bat. I help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My... Uh, my... <laughs> <laughs> 